the world is rough out there, and sadly, not all of us can be as invincible as Mark Grayson. Hello and welcome to episode 21 of Nerd Explosion. I am your host, John Winter, and as always, I am joined by the candid Clark himself, Sean Clark. How are you doing today, Sean? Well, uh, it's been an interesting few days in the world of entertainment. Obviously, we got a trailer or two to discuss, but also, yeah, started Invincible, as you referenced in the intro. That watching that was interesting. I also lost my wallet after watching. That. I still can't find it. So, been, been fun. I wish uh, I wish that that someone from Invincible had X-ray vision and could find wherever that damn thing went. But you know what? The show's great. Let's get into it along with a bunch of other stuff. Because dear God, yeah, I think Robot has X-ray vision, but I don't. I don't remember correctly. Okay, but... so I wish I could enlist Robot to help me find my wallet because I don't know where the damn thing went. Yeah. Well, let's move it. I apologize for you losing your wallet, but we got some, we got a lot of news to talk about. So let's jump right into that. First off, we got the trailer, James Gunn's The Suicide Squad. And it's been over a year since the last time we had footage or anything from this movie. Back before the pandemic happened, DC had their big fan event where they showed off all the current films they were working on. We had a small look at Suicide Squad in that, but this is the first official trailer. And in this, we see almost every member of the major cast and the main villain. What are your thoughts on the trailer, Sean? Okay, first of all, this trailer is crazy fun. Crazy fun is the best way that you can sum up this trailer. You saw all the members of the cast. A couple that really stood out to me was Idris Elba's Bloodsport. Obviously, John Cena's Peacemaker was really fun. And Viola Davis was as intimidating as ever as Amanda Waller, one of the very few good things from the 2016 movie that I, yikes, that that exists. And that's all I need to say about that. I loved how this trailer showed the banter between the team. There's a lot of interesting dialogue that was said in the trailers, definitely rated R for sure, with some of the things that were said in the trailer. And And shown. (laughs) And shown. The biggest thing from the trailer is Hunt? Hunt? Yeah. Yeah. Rocky Balboa as King Shark. How about them apples? Uh, If that isn't the coolest thing ever, I don't know what is. Literally, yeah. Rocky as King Shark is a match made in heaven that I didn't know was a match made in heaven. But now that I see the match, I'm like, I'm so on board. King Shark is going to steal every scene that he is in, and I cannot. Uh, I will buy a movie ticket to this film just to watch Sylvester Stallone as King Shark. I'm not kidding you, because in the Flash CW TV series, King Shark was good, but this is going to be so much better. Oh, I, I, I'm, I'm ready for the King Shark content. Give me King Shark, damn it! Yeah, it seems that I, this could be coincidental. But it seems that the personality that King Shark is going to have in this film is very similar to the version of the characters in the Harley Quinn animated series, which is a very purely comedic but brutal when he needs to be character. And I'm excited to see what they do with him here. It's, again, it's awesome that they're bringing in King Shark into this movie. I really wanted him to be in the the 2016 one. But since James Gunn is obviously a a bigger fan of the Suicide Squad, than the people that were working on that one, we of course have King Shark here, as well as a bunch of other random characters that I don't even know that much about. <laughs> uh, that's saying a lot. 
if you don't know who some of the characters are. But the the cast is very low. It's very interesting to see how they how they banter with one another. Obviously, one reason the Avengers movies work so well is because the main cast has great chemistry with one another. And that's really the selling point of this movie. If the the main cast has great chemistry with one another, then the movie will work. 2016 version did not really have that. It was very forced. It was very, it just, it didn't feel like there was much chemistry there. But now that now this is going to be a much more fun movie, and if the banter can work really well as we saw in the trailer, then this movie should work really well. Yeah, and I think one of the more interesting decisions is that James Gunn made with this movie is who the villain is, who the Suicide Squad have been put together the fight against. And I still can't believe that we're getting Starro in live action. <laughs> Probably one of the silliest um villains that the justice league has ever faced in the comics and the reason why they originally formed before the new 52 happened but starro is probably one of the more fun like gigantic threat villains and that's not normally something that i like in a suicide squad story but with james gunn i'm honestly okay with it like one of the biggest issues i have with the 2016 suicide squad was enchantress as a villain the suicide squad really shouldn't be handling such huge threats but I think I can take, I think I can give them a pass on Starro just because of how awesome it is to see Starro in live action. Yeah, I don't know much about the character, but it, but obviously with James Gunn involved, I'm pretty sure it's going to work really well. Yeah, the basic premise with Starro is that he's like a alien from outer space that comes to various planets to try to conquer them by spreading like mini starros onto the masses to have them control the people of the planet so that he can rule it so very powerful character just very silly design <laughs> gotcha i'm looking forward to saying that yeah the other bit of big dc news that we got this week was pierce brosnan the former James Bond actor will be playing Dr. Fate in DC's Black Adam. Um, bit weird if I have to say so myself. And it's, it's interesting. Obviously, Pierce Brosnan is, is most known for being James Bond. That, that'll be the role that he's forever most known for. So for him to play a, a pretty prominent superhero... And Black Adam, am I the only one that thinks this is weird? It just it doesn't it doesn't seem like that would fit in seamlessly. I get they're trying to go for an older actor, but I this just feels really weird to me. Well, the thing with Doctor Fate, um, how much do you know about Doctor Fate, Sean? I know about his powers, and I know he's close related to Shazam. That's about it. Okay, so in the comics and in various anime shows, like this is also the case in Young Justice, Dr. Fate, otherwise known as um, Nabu, which is his real name, um, is kind of like a god type presence. Um, the helmet is what gives the person that acts as Dr. Fate their powers. The helmet is Nabu, and when they put it on, they become him. He takes over their body and assumes control of whatever abilities they have amplified by his own um so nabu usually prefers to take over magic based characters like um 
I'm forgetting the character's name, but the the female magician, um, Zatanna. She he likes taking over characters like Zatanna or her father Zatara, um, because that way they amplify his abilities. And the reason why they're looking for an older actor is that in the comics, the current host of Nabu has been hosting him for years, which is one of the reasons why they likely cast Pierce Brosnan. And the host of Nabu is a really respectful older gentleman when he isn't wearing the mask. Um, so I think it's really good casting in my opinion, but we'll just have to wait and see. Pierce Brosnan is of course an amazing actor. So I have no doubt that he'll be able to pull this role off. Okay. Now that, okay. Now that I get the, now that I understand that more, it does make a lot more sense. And I will say Pierce, give Pierce Brosnan this. He's definitely an actor that has a lot of charisma and authority. That is one reason why he works so well with James Bond is because he he had a presence, he had authority, and he demanded attention. And so with the role that you've explained, actually that fits in really well the more I think about it. Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, of the Bond films, I've seen GoldenEye as one of my favorites. So I was very excited when I saw that Pierce Brosnan was announced to play Bond. What, that who played Bond was announced to play um, Dr. Fate. So as well as Dr. Fate being one of the more interesting characters in DC, I've always been a huge sucker for like the big magical powerhouses from um, both Marvel and DC. I've always been a huge fan of both Dr. Fate and Dr. Strange. So it was about time that we got um, Dr. Fate on the big screen, especially in the movie that will be tackling the Justice Society of America. Because the film will, of course, also feature characters like Adam Smasher and Cyclone, who are notoriously been members of the Justice Society of America in the past in the comics. So all around, I'm, I'm surprisingly excited for a Black Adam movie starring Dwayne The Rock Johnson. <laughs> yes, it's... Yeah, it, it's going to be really fun. And with Dr. Face going to make it more interesting, obviously, I'm intrigued to learn even more about this character it's it's gonna be it's gonna be very interesting now here's a question for you do you prefer dr strange or dr fate if you had to choose one? Oh god that's so hard um and you on the spot here i think dr fate's the more interesting character just because of him having like of it being a, a sentient helmet that then takes over and controls um uh, a normal magician and dr fate also has more I shouldn't say more creative powers, but his use in stories is usually more interesting than Doctor Strange. That's not to say I don't like Doctor Strange, because again, I, I love Doctor Strange. He's awesome. Um, but Doctor Fate just, I would rather read a story with Doctor Fate than a story with Doctor Strange if I was put on the spot. Very interesting answer. I wonder how many viewers you upset with that statement. Um, I mean, again, most people that like, our fans of Doctor Strange are likely only fans because of the films, which is perfectly fine, but that likely means you don't know anything about Doctor Fate. Um, I think the only mainstream thing that Doctor Fate has appeared in was Smallville, and he was fine in Smallville, but he didn't really have a huge role in the series. I mean, we just showed up for a few times. And the Justice League, the animated series, he really only had focus for like two, two, maybe three episodes. Um, so I think it was Young Justice that finally gave Dr. Fate like a lot of screen time with having the members of Young Justice have to um, fight to protect the helmet of Nabu after its host was um, killed or died of old age. So very interesting. 
But yeah, Black Adam is currently set to begin filming soon, as stated by Dwayne The Rock Johnson. He said that it was going to start production spring of this year, and it is currently spring. So I imagine we'll get an announcement of production beginning pretty soon. Um, the film is currently set to release in theaters on July 29th, 2020. And besides Pierce Brosnan and The Rock, we're also going to have... Um, Noah Centineo as Adam Smasher, Aldous Hodge as Hawkman, Quintessa Swindell as Cyclone, and Sarah Shahi as Isis. Wait, you mean 2022, right? Is oh, yeah, 2022. 2020? My bad. Okay, I just wanted to make yeah, sure. July 29th, 2022. Gotcha. Cool. Um, the last bit of news that we have today is that back in November, the official My Hero Academia Twitter page teased that a third film was in the works with a teaser poster featuring Bakugo, Deku, and Todoroki. And this past Saturday, we finally got its official title, as well as a preview trailer of the movie and the new poster. Um, the film will, of course, be called My Hero Academia, the movie World Heroes Mission. Ooh, I'm very excited about this. Now, First of all, I was, we talked about this last semester, but when I first saw there's a new My Hero Academia movie, I'm just like, really? I've had two of these already. And we all know how the animation took a little bit of a nosedive in the first half of season four because they're working on the movie. However, what does really excite me for this movie is, so the first film emphasized Deku and All Might. The second film emphasized Deku and Bakugo. Now, the third film is going gonna, is gonna to emphasize Deku, Bakugo, and Todoroki, which, well, Todoroki is my favorite character in all of anime. So seeing a movie that features him might excite me just a tad, just, 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 just a tad. And I personally am really excited for this. And the trailer said something very interesting, how Deku commits mass murder. Very interesting. Yeah, I'm willing to bet that this is kind of an instance, kind of like um, have anyone that's seen Batman versus Superman, a lot of the issues with Superman's story is that it's him dealing with all the damage that was caused to Man of Steel. And I wonder if something similar has happened with Deku. Now, this film, of course, I believe takes place after the events of season five, which will which of course premiered in Japan this past weekend and hopefully we'll be getting the English dub for it soon. But Based off of that, I'm, I'm willing to bet that Deku got into a fight with a supervillain and caused just a little too much property damage that resulted in many deaths. Seeing as he's a kid that still doesn't have full control over um, one for all, it's not impossible to say that that could happen. And it would make for a really interesting story. Yeah, I have a feeling that it could possibly be a fight against Shigaraki that caused so much damage that that is definitely a possibility. But yeah, I'm intrigued to see where they go with that and to see uh, Deku, Baku, and Todoroki with uh, basically stealth-like suits. So cool. Yeah, and based off of the title of the film, it seems like it's going to take place in countries outside of Japan, which is something that we've only seen just a little bit of in the first movie, My Hero Academia 2 Heroes, with All Might being in Las Vegas during his time in America. And the island that they were on during most of the movie wasn't in Japan either. But that's really the only time that we've gotten 
um, to see the world of My Hero Academia outside of Japan. So I, it'll be cool to see where they go in this film. One thing I'm very excited about for this movie is to see where the timeline is at this point because the, the uh, Heroes Rising, we basically saw certain things that were in the manga before after after season four events happened because the movie came out when season four was coming out right yeah at the time that heroes rising came out there were small things that were in the film like where the league of villains were at or deku having the the air shots on his fingers which hadn't been introduced in the anime yet that were already in the film yeah, and I'm very interested to see like what what the what the scope of everything looks like, and obviously with the new with the newer costumes, it's going to be just really cool to see. Yeah, again, uh, my theory, as I mentioned this earlier, but my theory is that it takes place sometime after the events of season five. I'm sure that manga readers have an even better guess on where it's at because mo they've stated that the films, since they are canonical but aren't interrupting the events of the manga they have to take place sometime during it and the easiest place for them to have the film set is wherever the manga currently is in its writing that way it doesn't necessarily interrupt whatever story horikoshi is trying to tell this is this is very true but yeah the film is currently set to release in japan on august 8th and it's currently unknown when it's going to release in North America, but I imagine it will be a few months afterwards, considering that's what happened with Two Heroes and Heroes Rising. Absolutely, and I'm really looking forward to it. When you, when you and I saw Heroes Rising, that was really fun. Um, this movie could be even better, and I'm really excited for it. Absolutely. All right, let's move into our television discussion. This oh, week, dear God. This week, we got a show that I've been waiting for for a while ever since it was announced i've been super excited i've been talking and i've talked about it previously on the podcast i talked about when um the cast was first announced for it as well as when the first trailer was released and now we have the first three episodes but we've only seen the first two and that is of course amazon's adaptation of robert kirkman and ryan otley's invincible Oh my God. Okay. The boys is great. Season one, season two are both excellent, but I can already tell you this right now. This show is already looking to be even better than that. And that's saying a lot. This show is insane. There, there are so many characters. There's so much going on. It's incredibly graphic, not to mention uh, the, 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 the story is already insane. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah, for those that don't know anything about Invincible, before we start going into spoilers, first of all, I highly recommend you go on Amazon right now and watch it. Like, just go and watch it. It's in the animated adaptation of literally the best comic ever written. Go watch it right now. But if you want a little bit of information before you go watch it, Invincible follows Mark Grayson, a teenage superhero, kind of like Spider-Man, except he has powers like in the Superman. In fact... Invincible's version of Superman is Mark Grayson's father, and the show deals with Mark having to live up to the expectations placed on him by both the world and himself because of how notorious his father is and everything that that entails. We're going to dive 
straight into spoilers now. So <laughs> seriously, go watch Invincible, then come back and listen to the podcast and listen to us talk about it. Because this is legitimately one of the best superhero stories ever written. And the show is already on par, if not better than the comic, because it's adapting everything that came before. Oh, yeah. So Mark Grayson's father, he just killed the entire Justice League, so to speak. So in the show, there's a there's basically a Justice League group called the Guardians of the Globe. Yes. And you're like, OK, so we have the Guardians of the Globe. OK, there are all these new characters that you know we're gonna get to know over the course of the show and they're gonna have some backstories and yeah. stuff like that. You get a lot of time at the beginning of episode one showing off their powers and how well they work together, not just as a team, but with Omni-Man as well. Um, you get to see what their personal lives are like outside of their costume. And then Omni-Man kills all of them. Yeah, Omni-Man just lures every single one of them there and just slaughters them. What yeah, the hell, Very man? graphically too. I mean, he like smashes um the the equivalent of the flash with his bare hands on his head and just crushes his skull and it's brutal and awesome <laughs> it is insane i thought okay so he's just gonna you know he's just gonna show up there and he's gonna have a meeting with with the guards of the globe and i'm like okay like there's nothing you know about this and then he starts attacking them and i'm like wait 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 hold on yeah, he immediately shows up and tries to punch a mortal straight through the face. <laughs> so. Yeah, I thought to myself, okay, this is a simulation. This could be a dream. Uh, this could this could be some sort of training. No, he just straight up murders them. I'm like, what the hell? Yep. It was too unbelievable to believe. Yeah, and yeah, yeah, they're all dead. We get at the beginning of the second issue when um, the government agency that's responsible for protecting the world comes to kind of figure out what happened because you know the uh, to their knowledge the guardians of the globe have been disappeared for a day and they probably have some kind of surveillance on their or knowledge on their hideout so to see what exactly happened they're under the assumption that they got attacked by a supervillain because all of them are dead and omni-man is brutally injured because he had to fight war woman and the mortal on his own <laughs> um and the only one still alive is of course the immortal because he's immortal it should surprise no one <laughs> yes but right now all they have is his head really yeah well his body kind of has reflexes but they're trying to keep they're trying to preserve his head, likely to reattach it to his body so that he can heal. And obviously, if he remembers everything, that's, oh boy. Yeah, I, if they are able to revive a mortal, it's very likely that we might see a fight between him and Omni-Man in episode three. And hit, wink, wink. <laughs> oh, so, oh no. That should be oh. exciting. Oh no, that oh boy. Oh, and this oh. time he'll be prepared for it. <laughs> well, he will be prepared for it, just getting absolutely blindsided. Yeah. That doesn't necessarily mean he's gonna win, <laughs> but it'll be it'll probably be way more of a fight than what we got. <laughs> also, can we talk about how great JK Simmons is as the voice of Omni Man? Like Yeah, he has a really good presence as Omni Man. I mean, I've always I've like Omni-Man in the comics a lot. I think he's a really interesting character. And J.K. Simmons does a great job portraying him in this show. 
Yes, because we all know that, that J.K. Simmons cannot voice a single character that doesn't have a mustache. Examples, uh, Tenzin from The Legend of Korra. And J.J. Faith- Jonah, Jameson, and literally every Spider-Man animated thing ever. <laughs> yes. He does it really well. It's exciting to see. And not just Omni-Man, but there's also a lot of other very interesting characters. Mark Grace himself is a, is a very good protagonist. He's, you know, obviously... Uh, he's obviously the son of Omni-Man, but he's he's a good guy. He, he has a heart. He does have anger issues, but he also has a lot of pressure on him, and that's very understandable when your father is literally Superman. Yeah, and in the second episode, we get to see what happens when he tries to take on kind of the world-ending threats that his father has to face on a regular basis, and his reaction is very human. Yeah, so this alien group called the Flaxons showed up. Yes, multiple times. <laughs> three times. The first time they aged, they age and they have to retreat. Yeah. The second, the second time, uh, they have wristbands and robots like, hey, just take off the wristbands. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's the Flaxons age so quickly because they're from a different dimension. Um, and time works differently in their universe than it does in our own. So because of that, when they spent just a little too much time on Earth, they began to rapidly age quickly. And before that point, they were beating the heroes badly. Remember, the Guardians of the Globe had just been killed by Omni-Man, so it's up to the rest of the heroes on Earth that are available, which in this case was primarily the Team Team and Invincible, to face the threat. And if it wasn't for their rapid aging, they would have probably taken over Earth since Omni-Man was still comatose at that point due to his fight with the Guardians of the Globe. Yeah, thank God for rapid aging. Yeah. Um, The second time around, the same thing happened. They now, because time works differently with the Flaxons, they had likely decades, as Robot stated, to figure out how to defeat the team team, um, figuring out ways to work around each of their powers, especially... Um, Adam, Eve, and Robot, who are easily the two most powerful members of the team team. So if it wasn't for Invincible, they probably would have absolutely lost the second time around as well, because Invincible was able to keep the fight going long enough that Robot realized why they weren't aging so quickly. This is this is very true, because they did have decades to prepare. And the third time, they came back even stronger. Yeah, the, their leader now has superpowers as a way to compensate for Invincible's Super strength. However, the one thing he didn't know to compensate for was Omni-Man, who was finally awake and able to move and fight, which is a good thing and a bad thing. <laughs> yes, because obviously him being awake is a better problem because he literally just murdered the Guardians of the Globe. And it's very interesting. So Omni-Man takes, takes uh, the leader through the portal and basically he said earth is not yours to conquer very interesting wording there yes very interesting wording it's almost like that's a that's saying that he's going to conquer earth Mm. oh yes and he and basically because time works differently it is implied that omni man spent weeks on the flaxons planet or he just or months and he just returns home. He's just like, I need a shower. Yeah. Yeah, that also happened in the comics. Although in the comics, they actually had panels showing the length of time that passed on Earth with him being 
gone in on the Flaxen planet <laughs> with um, Mark and his mother being home by themselves. And you can see the look of relief on her face when he finally comes back. <laughs> yes, because he was away for a little bit, but then it just seemed like, oh, he was gone for only a little bit when said he was actually gone for quite a while and Omni Man just looked terrible. Yeah, uh, he definitely seemed like he spent a lot of time destroying most of, if not all, of the Flaxons. Let's just say he went a little bit overboard. Yeah, I mean, again, like we mentioned Mark's anger issues before. He gets them from his dad. <laughs> yes, uh, and that's definitely something he's going to have to wrestle with. And obviously, at some point, Mark is going to find out that his father wants to conquer Earth and Oh boy. Uh, yeah. I mean, that's not going to go over very well. Yeah. The other major development that we got in the second episode is before the final, before the third Flax invasion with Omni-Man being back in, as being a superhero once again, um, there was a, a alien that came to Earth that uh, Omni-Man had apparently been fighting for a while, every few years. Um, and since Omni-Man was currently not ready and able to go back to superheroing invincible was the one that went up and had the fight him and this character is of course alan the alien who is one of my personal favorite characters in the comics might even be my favorite character in invincible so he's voiced by seth rogan and literally mark defeats him by just having a conversation and then realize that oh dude you, you've been going to the wrong planet for a decade you idiots yeah, to be fair, before that point, Mark was actually putting up a pretty good fight against him. <laughs> Despite the fact that Alan obviously had way more training and way more practice using his abilities. Um, but he doesn't have much of a brain. No, obviously not, because he'd been going to the wrong planet, fighting the wrong person for probably a decade. And it's important to note that Army Man never once stopped to talk with Alan during any of their fights in the past. Um, and that's likely due to how powerful um, Omni-Man is, how powerful Nolan is. He didn't think that there was, it was necessary to stop the fight to talk. While Mark, being completely different, being more human, um, naturally stops to the, the, because he just doesn't want to constantly get beaten by him. <laughs> yes, he's like, okay, dude, like, like, what's the deal? And then when when Alan realizes he went to the wrong planet, the reaction was absolutely hilarious, and I was laughing so hard. Yeah, that's why. Yeah, I come to Giraffe every every few years to make sure that it's being protected by someone by fighting them. And and Mark's like, Giraffe, this is Earth with an E. <laughs> Wait, way to go, Alan! Uh, you are so getting fired for this. Yeah, the look on Alan's face afterwards is great. He's like, uh, crap. <laughs> Because it's implied that he has left a, a whole planet defenseless for a decade. Yeah. Yeah. I really hope that planet's doing okay. Yeah. I guess we'll have to find out the next time we see Alan. <laughs> Very true. Being, a, being the enforcer of the Coalition of Planets gives him a large range of duties. And it's likely that since Invincible is such a powerful character and likely will be the premier hero on earth at some point i'm it, it's it's safe to assume that he and alan will see each other multiple times over the course of the show from here on out 
I mean, considering that you said he's his favorite character, obviously he is for a reason. So yes. yeah, he's very. I, I think the biggest reason Alan's my favorite character is he's the most pure fun character in the comic. <laughs> so, and you can already see that from his first appearance in the show as well. Gotcha. Also, we have Adam Eve. Yeah, the teen team was introduced in the second episode as well, and. It's very obvious that our, our two favorite members at this point are probably Adam Eve and Robot. Without question. And, Without question. Yeah, and Adam Eve personally is probably my second favorite character in the comic. And that's mainly due to how unique her powers are, because they're basically matter manipulation, which is always really interesting. And not to mention, she 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 kind of reminds me of oh. Oh, what's her name? The the, the girl from uh, Blood of Zeus. What's her name? Alexis? Yes. Alexia. 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 It reminds me of her like a very strong level head. It doesn't take any crap. It does have a soft side to her. Mm -hmm. And I really enjoy those kind of female characters. And uh, her relationship with uh, her dynamic with Mark is already off to get started. They have already good chemistry. And that's obviously going to be really important going forward. Oh, absolutely. Um, I mean, there's, you're going to get a lot of Adam Eve from this story. She's probably, she kind of acts as a secondary protagonist sometimes throughout the comic, as does Alan. I think that there's full issues in the comic that revolve around Alan as well. Um, to give, that like, is awesome. to define, like, what else is going on in the universe since he's a member of the Coalition of Planets. But yeah, Adam Eve, and even the rest of the, the team team, especially Robot and Rexplode, who is very very unlikable at the beginning of this story he does get a they all three of them get a lot of time to develop throughout invincible so i mean that is good and i will say that rex has a lot of room to grow because he's basically not the nicest person in the world and he he had, he needs some reality checks yeah and it makes you question why Adam Eve is dating him in the first place. Disgusting. Absolutely <laughs> disgusting. I guess I guess we um, get the love that we think we deserve, right? <laughs> I was literally going to say that. Because I remember Paul Rudd from Perks of Being Wildfire saying, people accept the love they think they deserve. Literally, like, when you said that, I thought that line didn't Exactly, yeah. Dang. Gosh, thanks. But Girl, yes. Yeah, that was a good movie. <laughs> Great movie. I highly recommend, by the way. But yes, uh, wonder why. Yeah, um, yeah, a lot of great stuff for the first couple episodes. Obviously, we'll for the next episode next week. We'll talk about episodes three and four. We'll make sure we watch both of those by next week. Yes, episode four comes out on Friday. Episode, the first three episodes are already available on Amazon. So. I mean, again, I don't know why you would be listening to us talk about the spoilers for the show if you haven't seen it. But if you listen to our discussion and still haven't watched Invincible, go watch it right now. Go do it. I will, I will find you, and I will beat you with a bat until you watch Invincible. <laughs> Funny you mentioned the bat. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> very specific. Yeah, very, very specific. <laughs> um. But yeah, no, it's again, Invincible is one of my favorite comics of all time. It's so awesome to see it adapted into animation so well. The animation in these episodes in particular, while the models aren't like super 
like complicated or interesting mainly because the comic that they're pulling from is they're they're not really all that interesting in the comic either but it's like the action shots and the animation during them that is really good throughout these first two episodes and i imagine that'll likely be the case going forward throughout the show and on top of that the voice cast is absolutely amazing Yes, it is. J.K. Simmons, Seth Rogen, Stephen Ewan as Mark is also fantastic, among many others. Yeah, you wouldn't believe you. I mean, like you could capture the excitement that I felt when I heard Mark Hamill's voice come out of art in, in Invincible and put it in a bottle and and keep it, and you could sell it for like millions of dollars. <laughs> oh, I remember <laughs> that moment. Oh, uh, that was so good. That was so great. It's such perfect casting, too. It's so great to hear Mark Hamill play a, a character that isn't a villain in the superhero property for once. <laughs> oh, yes. No, absolutely. It's it's great to see him in a more mentor role. And obviously, it's always a, tri- a treat to hear Mark Hamill's voice. Yeah. And on top of that, Art is a really cool character because he's the one that designs the suits for all the soups. So he naturally has a lot of background information on all of them. So... And his conversations with Mark in the comics always bring a bit of levity because outside of his mom, he's really the only other like human person that kind of that truly understands what he's going through as a superhero. Yes, it's very refreshing. But yeah, and that's also like we also got Walter Goggins as the leader of the Earth Defense Force, which is awesome. <laughs> Cecil, right? Yeah, yeah, he's the voice of Cecil. And Cecil is probably one of the more morally, kind of like Omni-Man, he's one of the more morally gray characters as well. He's, he has a lot in common with a, char- like, uh, um, a character like, why am I forgetting her name? The, the coordinator of the Suicide Squad. Amanda Waller? Amanda Waller. He's a lot like Amanda Waller. Um, he's very morally gray and often will make... Um, certain decisions just based on trying to preserve humanity and they might not always seem morally right especially when compared to like how Mark's morals are placed so and I, and I feel like Walton Goggins is a really perfect actor to capture that I'm also amazed um, with how different Cecil sounds. I had to actually look up the fact that it was Walton Goggins. If you had told me that was Walton Goggins voicing Cecil, I wouldn't have believed you. Yes, for sure. It's it, it'll be interesting to see what the role is with the government in this show because we've seen it a little bit, but there's going to be much more heavily implicated in future episodes. Yeah, especially with the Guardians of the Globe gone, the the governments of the of the world kind of have to stand up and figure out a, a way to replace the guardians of the globe and, and coordinate the rest of the superheroes on earth in order to, to fight the threats that the guardians used to face. So it's going to be interesting to see what the governments will do with their newfound power, so to speak. Yeah. Considering that they have more responsibility on their shoulders. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. The other superhero show that we got this week was, of course, Falcon and Winter Soldier, which also got another new episode this past Friday. And at the end of the last episode, we were, of course, introduced to John Walker as the U.S. agent. And this episode is called The Star-Spangled Man because it heavily focuses on John Walker and gives him a lot of time to shine. 
Yes, this episode is so good. Okay, I gotta say these these first two episodes have been a plus, especially the second episode. So John Walker actually is a likable guy. Surprise. Yeah, kind of. He's kind of likable. He's sympathetic at least. Like we get where he's coming from, and he understands the weight that's on his shoulders. Even if he might, he could have been a little nicer to Falcon and and Bucky. He could have been, but at the same time. He, he's a patriotic guy who wants to do the best for his country. And yeah, obviously he, he's fun. I said, I don't want to be like Steve. I just want to do what I can. Mm-hmm. And with all this pressure on him, like I, I can't, it's hard to dislike him. Obviously I get why Falcon and the Winter Soldier don't like him, but at the same time, I, 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 I understand this guy and it, it creates such a moral like dilemma and that's fantastic. Yeah, because you want Falcon to be to take up the shield and be Captain America because that's what Steve wanted. But you can't say that John Walker's doing a horrible job with the shield. He's at least attempting to bring the same kind of levity that, that Steve brought with his time as Cap. So, yes, and at least like Falcon can, has, the, uh, has the intelligence to see that, hey, uh, maybe we should actually work with this guy in some ways and see what he's got. Bucky, yeah. on the other hand, no. Yeah, Sam attempted to try to make maybe some, or at least attempt to understand what he was going for until John Walker called him um, Steve's wingman. I think at that point that destroyed any kind of sympathy that Falcon was going uh-huh. to have with him. Uh-huh. <laughs> yes, but at least like he's like, you know what, let's work with them. He Obviously, tried. He worked through. He tried. Yeah, Bucky he gave it a good try. Now, I, and I think that's mainly due to um, a few reasons. Bucky, of course, was in the agreement with Steve with Sam having the shield, as well as in John Walker's interview, first interview publicly with him being as Captain America, um, he called Steve like a, that. He said that Steve was like a, a brother to him, despite the fact that they never met. And you can see the the vitriol in Bucky's face went when he says that on live television. So I think it's very reasonable for Bucky not to like him. Oh yeah. When he said that, I'm like, uh, probably shouldn't have said that. Yeah. That was a little, that was a little much. Just a bit. It's a bit much. Like you could say like, Oh, who is that cured me? But a brother, dude, come on. That, that's like the one thing that John walked in. I'm like, okay, dude, that was not, that was not okay. Yeah. And they also do a good job of showing that John Walker doesn't have – he's not as powerful as Steve. He's not as ready and able to fight because um, like Falcon and Bucky, he gets his butt handed to him by um, the super soldier terrorists. Yes. The Flag and, Smashers. And I can't remember the actress's name, but the leader of the Flag Smashers, at least the group that we saw, is the same – is the same actress that played the leader of the Marauders in Solo, a Star Wars story. Yeah, um, that is Erin Kellyman. She played Emphis Nest in Solo, a Star Wars story. So seeing her like, oh, I know you. Yeah, she is an actress that usually is able to handle most of her own stunts, which is the reason why she was cast as Emphis Nest for Solo and likely the same reason why she was cast in this show. Um, she has at least decent acting ability um, 
as well as being able to handle her own stunts, which makes it much easier for them when they're filming. Yes, and I and I noticed that Winter Soldier, uh, Falcon the Winter Soldier, kind of did this, uh, you know, same kind of thing that Solo did, where you see this big bad leader, and then you see it's just her. And yeah. The same, and basically we got the same reaction in Falcon the Winter Soldier than we did in Solo. Like, wait. Yeah, really? I think it's written just a bit better though, because they do they make it very clear what they're aiming for that like that she's a citizen in distress that she'd been. Um, captured by um, the Flag Smashers, when in reality she's one of the people leading them. I don't think that she's like the de facto leader as much as one of the people that just like found the Super Soldier Serum and then spread it to the rest of the group. Yeah, because uh, Falcon said, oh, there's a hostage and we see her and she ends up being, you know, one of the biggest ones. Yeah. Which very surprising to say the least. Yes, agreed. I was not expecting that. Yeah. Neither were Falcon and the Winter Soldier. Speaking of Falcon and the Winter Soldier, they kind of had a very d- distressing scene in therapy. In therapy, where Yes, after their serious loss against... Actually, before we get to that, because there actually there's one important scene I want to discuss that happened in the episode before the therapy scene. Um. After their serious loss against the Flag Smashers, Falcon, of course, talks to Bucky about the history of the Super Soldier Serum and why the Flag Smashers even have a version of it. And Bucky takes him to meet Isaiah, who in the comics is known as the Patriot, or the second version of Captain America. Very interesting. But but basically... It, uh, Isaiah was basically cast aside and he was in jail for 30 years. Yeah, well, it's important to note that he wasn't literally in jail. He was kept and tested in, but for him, it might as well been jail. He was alone by himself, constantly tested on by the government because they were trying to replicate the super soldier serum that was used on him. Um, And based off what Bucky said, it seemed like he was active in the 50s and 60s which winds up with the comics as well. Um, yeah. And... and this definitely goes into the theme of racism and how Falcon Winter Soldier is dealing with modern day U.S. and how it deals with its varying um, cultures and discrimination. Um, we saw this a bit in the first episode with the bank loan, but this is, hev- this is seen very heavily in this episode, especially with Isaiah. Yeah, we and after the conversation, we see uh, Bucky and Sam. They're just walking outside, and cops are basically interrogating—not necessarily interrogating, but questioning Sam, even though he was just walking around. Yeah, because they saw him having an argument with Bucky, and thought that Sam was harassing Bucky. And Bucky and Bucky was very confused as to why this was happening, proving that he doesn't fully understand what is going on. Yeah, um, and it's not just that Bucky is confused. It's it's more so, I think Bucky actually understands what's going on, but he just is surprised that something like that is still happening. That's also, yeah, that's also another way to look at it too. And it goes to show that, yeah, this is something that Falcon has to deal with as 
to a lot of people in society, unfortunately. And I like how mature they handled it. Yeah, it's it's showing that just because Falcon is a superhero doesn't mean that he is he doesn't have to deal with what the average person in America, the average black person in America has to deal with discrimination wise, which is really powerful. That's it's awesome. And I'm I'm very grateful that Falcon Winter Soldier is actually handling an issue like that. I'm I would assume that Disney wouldn't let something like that kind of come into their stories, but again, I'm I'm glad they did. I'm glad that they're openly talking about stuff like this within Falcon Winter Soldier. Definitely. Now let's talk about the therapy scene. Yeah, immediately after this, because you know, because Bucky they arrest Bucky um, after they realize that Sam is the Falcon because he missed his um, his scheduled therapy session, which is basically the equivalent of missing parole. So they have to arrest him and bring him in and force him to attend the meeting. And the the person that the, his therapist basically forces Sam to come in there with him, thinking that this that what Bucky is dealing with is likely due to whatever connection or issues he has with Sam. So she brings both of them together into the same room to try to work through their problems. And it doesn't exactly go well. (laughs) Yes, because Bucky is still pissed that Falcon didn't take up the shield. Rightfully so, honestly. (laughs) Yeah, it wasn't the best decision that Falcon made. Yeah. I mean, it's understandable because, you know, Falcon doesn't feel like he's, he's worthy of it because he, he doesn't feel like he is as – like he's the same as Steve. And it's not like Thor's hammer where you literally have to be worthy to pick it up. It, it's, it's like any old object. Any, any person can, can hold the shield, but whether or not they're worthy of it is not necessarily up to, up to them, but up to the world around them and – even the person that held it before. And Steve thought that Sam was worthy of it. So. Yeah. And obviously we talked about last week, you know, the scene worked, but like, obviously should have realized that if you put down the shield, someone else is just going to take it. Who is even less worthy than you are. Probably didn't think about that. Yeah. He, I think Falcon had hoped or at least assumed that, the shield wouldn't be they wouldn't the government wouldn't name a new captain america without asking him a asking sam about it but of course they wouldn't um i mean sam doesn't directly work for the government he's just kind of an independent contractor as stated in the beginning of this episode so there was really no reason for like the smithsonian or the u.s government to ask him uh, or contact him about who the next Captain America would be. Yeah, he gave up that right when he gave up the shield. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, it sucks, but it's it makes sense. Yeah, and obviously these two's, uh, you know, issues will have to be resolved because as the uh, Flag Smashers are basically, you know, making, making a lot of noise and it even, there was even teased that they they said, oh, tomorrow there's no going back. Whatever that means, I have no idea, but yeah. it's not anything good. Yeah, and on top of that, in order to learn maybe just a little bit more about the Super Soldier Serum that the Flag Smashers have, Bucky came up with the brilliant idea to talk to Zemo from Captain America Civil War, who's currently in jail because he was captured by Black Panther at the end of that movie. So we're likely going to see 
um, Falcon and Bucky talk with um, Zemo while in jail. And I feel like it's going to be, it's going to give up very similar vibes to when um, Korra talked to Zaheer in Legend of Korra. Yes, sir. I was just thinking that too. Yes, sir. So I'm very excited for that. That was a great scene in that show. Yeah. Zemo was one of my favorite villains in the comics. I really liked how he was portrayed by Daniel Brühl in Civil War. So I'm very excited to see what they do with him in this show. And I imagine that we're going, since they teased him at the end of this episode, it's very likely we're going to see him in the next one talking with Bucky and Falcon. So very excited for that. Yes, obviously you're a huge Zemo fan. So I'm like, I'm pretty sure he's looking forward to the next episode, especially. Yes, very excited. Moving away from the superhero discussion, we did have a new episode of ReZero this week once again. Oh, God. 17, and we're finally getting to Amelia's backstory and her taking the trial. Uh, I, I assume that this would happen sooner, but we had to get through Otto and Garfield's backstories, apparently, <laughs> before yeah, we could get to this. <laughs> not sure why, but yes, we got Amelia, we got the first part of Amelia's backstory, obviously. There's going to be more episodes because there's a lot to unpack, but um, I'm just going to come out and say it just straight up. Oh my God. Pedal Hughes is backstory. Yeah. Um, I, at this point, I think he's just called Guse, which makes sense because that's what Beatrice called him at, um, earlier in this season um, when Subaru told her of that he defeated Pedal Guse. She actually kind of felt sorry and mourned him and we're starting to understand why, because back when Amelia was a was a kid, he was just a he was just a nice kind of priest guy that went out and helped the the elves and other discriminated against um, races in may, maybe not just Wagunica but the world at large. And I'm I'm like that we're getting depth for him because he was one of the he's he's one of the most entertaining anime villains I've seen. So it's cool to get some a lot of time giving him depth and an understanding yes uh i i like that pedal hughes was likable he was charming but obviously at the end of the episode when a regular shows up he seemed to have expected him or something like that so obviously there's something going on with hughes yeah he's but obviously then- a member of the witch's cult just by looking at what they're wearing but it's obvious that he's not a sin archbishop or at least hasn't been tainted by his love for the witch yet. Um, and you can see this in the contrast between him and Regulus and the way that Regulus carries himself, the sin archbishop of greed. You know, one of the two responsible for rendering Rem completely comatose at the beginning of the season. Yes, obviously Regulus is not a good person whatsoever. No, of course not. He's, he's like he's a, he's basically the embodiment of greed. And unlike Echidna, he worships Satella to like an, an unconscious, like ungodly amount. And because of this, it's very obvious that he's just plainly despicable. And I think out of the Sin Archbishops that we've seen, he is the one that has the most charisma and is the probably the most interesting conceptually, especially with the dialogue that he had with Cruchet and Rem at the beginning of this season. I'm, I'm very happy that we're getting more with him in Amelia's backstory because I wasn't expecting to see him until like season three. <laughs> I wasn't either. And 
and that makes Regulus a very terrifying villain. Now, when you have villains that carry themselves in a very intelligent way, and the main example I use with this concept is Grand Admiral Thrawn. Mm-hmm. When you have a villain who carries yourself in a very cool, calm, uh, intelligent way, that's that's some of the scariest villains to face off against because you're not going to rattle them and you're not going to get them angry and force them to do something rash. They're very calculated and regular seems to be that. And that's not good news. I mean, obviously he helped defeat Krush and Rem, which is which was not easy to do. The, those, those two are not pushovers. So in the next episode, when uh, when it picks back up with regular showing up in the forest, I'm a bit terrified to say the least. Yeah. And I like the amount of time spent with um, Amelia Guse and her mother. I'm forgetting her name off the top of my head. Fortuna. Um, I like the amount of time given with them because you see what Amelia's life was like before um, she met Puck, before she was, before she faced any kind of discrimination, before she knew about the outer world. And um, you can tell that Fortuna is doing her best to protect Amelia from what is going on in the rest of Lagunica. And I feel like Regulus is going to be Amelia's first experience with how cruel the rest of the world can be. And why she has such trust issues. Mm-hmm. And another interesting thing is that we see Amelia start communicating with the lesser spirits. Yes, we see her communicating with lesser spirits around the area that she lives in with the, the civilization of the elves. And again, that's also really neat. And you can see um, Pelagius's reaction to that as well. Um, because in season one, they one of the reasons why um, Pelagius was defeated was because of his fear of spirits. And I think it's likely that we're going to see why that fear exists in the first place in these episodes. Yeah, this is this is very true. It'll be interesting to see that, and I'm um, I'm very interested to see like like how like Hughes was corrupted, and I'm and this isn't the first uh, episode of the backstory, so there's going to be obviously more to come, at least one more, and uh, I don't know if I'm ready for this. I'm guessing that the reason why Pedalguse became a Sin Archbishop was likely to help protect. Fortuna and Amelia. It would give him way more power because he'd get the unseen hand um, and would also allow him to face and contest Regulus and the other Sin Archbishops and give him more power within the Witch's Cult at large. So I feel like he did it for good reasons, but it ultimately corrupted him because absolute power corrupts absolutely. Damn, Petal, damn, Petal Hughes went from an entertaining villain to an incredibly tragic character. My God. Yeah, if and we're right. only going to see more over the course of these episodes. So, oh, again, like, I'm genuinely surprised. I, I, I've seen art of Amelia with Fortuna and, and Goose before, but I didn't quite make the connection that, that, that the man with the green hair was Petal Goose. So, and I also, it's important to note that Amelia is only a half-elf. And I think that they're heavily hinting at the fact that that Pelagius might be her dad, which is also really interesting and could be another reason why she has such trust issues. 
Yeah, I don't know if they're going to quite go that far. It would be very interesting, but one thing's for sure, like, Hughes does love Amelia very, very much. Yeah, and I mean, and you can tell it from his reactions with Amelia and Fortuna, and again, I'm interested to see how they deal with that dynamic, and if we see um, Petalgeus' descent in the madness in during Amelia's backstory or not. I know that we're going to probably see the death of her mother and the elves just because at the beginning of the second half of the season, when um, we lost Puck, he freed up Amelia's memories and we saw um, everything frozen over. Like we see with um, the area around that, the, the barrier or the, the thing that's protecting the, the elves. The seal. The seal. Um, because the seal was completely covered in what looked like snow, which I mean, from I mean that could hint towards the rabbit, the white rabbit, maybe. Oh no! But I don't think that that's the case. I think it's more. I think it could end up being Puck, like the the village is being protected by Puck um, on the outside. Because remember, Amelia meets Puck in that forest after um, losing her mother, so I think. It's likely that Puck had free reign and that Amelia was somehow able to make a contract with him so that he wouldn't destroy everything. Yeah, because obviously when Puck gets, you know, pretty angry, it's it's not exactly a great thing. So something must have happened to cause Puck to want to do that, but Amelia was able to connect with him somehow, and that's why Puck was so close with Amelia. It would be very yeah. interesting to see that. I mean, I have no idea if that's actually the case. I'm just spitballing here, but that's, that's it could my be. guess. It could be. Yeah. Like, I can definitely see it being the case. Yeah. So, again, there has to be a reason why Amelia wasn't able to finish the trial. Like, it was so... Her, her doing this um, in the previous episodes was so tragic for and, and so traumatic for her that she cried and was unable to finish, not out of cowardice like Garfield. Like she didn't, um, there were times where she didn't just straight up run away. She just failed because um, she let her emotions dictate her response. And we see that through Echidna's reaction um, conversations with Amelia during this trial as well. Um, Echidna is constantly um, berating Amelia for her lack of maturity or inability to deal with her past yeah i wonder what got her set just so incredibly off and just devastated yeah oh boy i mean yeah and this is gonna leave us all devastated too yeah and i think one of the reasons why echidna shows so much why is so has so much tough love with amelia is because she has seen everything as shown and as revealed in the first half of the season she knows everything that happens and every time Subaru uses return by death so she has seen Amelia constantly fail the trial over and over and over again with the same response from her with Amelia breaking down into tears and giving up and that's happened every single time that she's tried to do the trial up to this point and Again, I think the big difference here is what Subaru said to her over the course of the last two episodes, because um, I think that Subaru's belief in Amelia is giving Amelia further belief in herself, that she'll be able to conquer her fears. 
ah, it isn't love giving you reassurance just wonderful. Mm-hmm. It, it it shows you know how having someone who loves and believes in you can really make life easier. It doesn't solve everything, but it definitely makes life a lot easier. Yeah, and again, it's just awesome to see because we've seen how Amelia has affected Subaru over the course of basically every episode of this show. So it's exciting to see it be the other way around now, seeing how much Subaru has affected and changed Amelia. Yes, character growth. It's great. And we see we see just how much confidence she's been, which is really satisfying to see considering she's she's been in fear for a bunch of the show. Yeah, it makes you doubt ever not liking Amelia, huh, Sean? You know what? You know what? Fair enough. Yeah. I mean, listeners only had the listen to me defend Amelia for like 13 straight, like 12 straight episodes of this podcast. <laughs> yeah, 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 whatever. But no, I, I really like this episode. I mean, I don't think it was as good as the last two, but it's fine. I think another, I think it will, it will benefit from the next couple episodes, getting more of Amelia's backstory, seeing where they're going with this and actually getting to see her finish the trial and how that will affect her going on in the story and how that changes everything. Um, because there has to be a good ending at the end of this arc, right? Because season two is the entirety of arc four. So there has to be some kind of happy ending at the end of this season in some shape or form. And that requires Amelia passing the trial so I imagine that we'll see that with the next couple episodes as we get as we get more of her backstory. Very exciting. We had a new episode of Higurashi this week, and we finally finished the third arc of GOU, which was five episodes long, which is one episode longer than most normal arcs are. And we now know exactly why it needed to be this long, because, oh boy, <laughs> this did not go the way I thought it would. <laughs> Oh, baby. Okay. All right. All right. Uh, this show is so good. Okay. So basically, yay, we won. Uh, the, the, Did we win, the, though? Did we win? Was this, is this what won? winning is like? Hold on. Does, does winning we... make me feel like garbage, Sean? <laughs> Anyways, basically, we won in the sense that Child Welfare Services basically, you know, caved in a way and they helped out with whatever they could with Sadako. And Detective Oishi, very interesting. First of all, he told Keiichi to screw off. And then he said, oh, you know what? I actually respect you. You know what? I'm going to help you. And oh, yeah. And I'm going to go to the Sadako's residence to help take the uncle away from her. And we hear Sadako have a phone call afterwards thinking that everything is okay. Yeah. And their first sign that things aren't right is that Oishi did say that he was going to deal with her uncle. But when Kaichi goes to the resident, he's still he's still there and he attacks Kaichi and, and beats him with a bat. Only for Kaichi to react the Kaichi to retaliate and kill him. Apparently, oh. just like in the original show. Oh, Except yeah. This time it was in self-defense instead of him just kind of 
assaulting and murdering him. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. A very big twist on the original where KG just straight up murders him because that did happen in the original. In the original, he just straight up murdered him. And Sadako literally lures, uh, literally lures Keiichi back to her house. And... <laughs> yeah, but I don't think she did. I, again, I think Sadako assumed that her uncle would not be there because of what Oishi said earlier in the episode. True, but it also, it also seemed like she wasn't completely surprised either. Uh, I disagree with that point. I think that she, I, you can you can tell by her reaction that she didn't think that was going to happen. I mean, from what I from what I get, it seemed like that she was horrified more than surprised. Does that really make a difference? That's not that. That's not that different. Well, well, it's more like it did. It did. I didn't get the sense of surprise from her. It just seemed like it was more of blurring. I think that's just a technicality. Fair enough. I do. But, I do not think that she intentionally brought um, Casey there to get beat up by her uncle at all. I, I'm pretty sure. I'm like ninety percent certain that that chain of events only happened because Oishi. Well, let's just say he wasn't in his right state of mind that night during the festival. Wasn't in his right state of mind. Not only that, he literally just goes on a killing spree at the Cotton Drifting Festival. Yeah, I, I'm based off of previous arcs. I'm assuming that the demon possessed him kind of the same way that it possessed Reyna in the first arc. That would make complete sense. It would, exchange, it would explain why he acted so differently and also why Rena acted so differently in the first arc compared to the other two. They're, that they're possessed by the great demon that the village worships. And you want to know what my, what my theory is as to why he killed all the kids? Because they fought back against the government and, and, the God, and God didn't like that. Very interesting theory is all I'm going to say to that. I mean, there has like there. I mean, because Shion, Mion, um, Rika, and Sadako were all killed, and I think that Rena only survived out of pure luck. I don't know how Rena survived, which had because she's tra she's traumatized, like visibly traumatized by what happened at the end of the episode. I highly doubt that she had anything to do with what happened at the festival. Or no. if she did, she was possessed just like Oishi. Yeah, but I don't think she had anything to do with it. And this is the second straight arc where Keiichi lives, but basically almost everyone else died. Yeah, because we can't what have happy endings. Uh, I mean, again, it's, it's interesting because kind of my understanding based off what you said of the original Higurashi is that during every arc, Keiichi died at the end. Is that what happened? For the most part? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. So it seems like they're dealing with the good-bad endings from the visual novel. Because again, Higurashi is based off of a visual novel, which means that it has multiple endings that you can get based off of the way that you're... I'm assuming you play as Keiichi. As Keiichi, based off all the decisions he makes throughout the story, that you make playing as him. Which means there has to be endings where you make 
the decisions that allow Keiichi to live, but not the decisions that will allow the rest of the characters to live. And it's interesting seeing how Keiichi reacts to stuff like that. Because that's also something somewhere that we got at the, at the, in the first arc. Because in the first arc of GOU, Keiichi was still alive at the end of it. I mean, it was foreshadowed he was going to die eventually. Like, he was going to get possessed and kill himself. But... He didn't get killed by any of the other characters, and that's a trend that all three of the arcs of GOU have in common. Yes, KG went nuts at the end of the first arc, but wasn't directly killed. So now we see... Well, he didn't go nuts on screen. It's implied that he will in the future. Yes. Why? Mm, let's say. But it, it's very interesting to see that, and yeah, I thought maybe they would go an extra episode with six, but... I, they ended the arc in a very satisfying way. Now, well, satisfying by like it ended and then it was written well, but obviously yes. it left us depressed afterwards. Yeah. Um, and now that now we know that there's gonna be another season of this, I imagine that based off of how these three arcs went, I wouldn't be surprised if every arc is like this. It ends with Keiichi still being alive, having to deal with the consequences of of just the small misinformed decisions that he made during that arc. Just the small, small issues, small things that he didn't see coming. Like in this arc, didn't realize that Sonico's uncle was still there. Yeah. Like, I, he never once, again, he he didn't think about the Khan Festival at all because of what was going with Sonico. And they've implied, based off of the fact that he... he feels like he has a connection to all the characters even if he hadn't directly met them yet that he remembers events from previous arcs which seeing as this is an adaptation of a visual novel that's not surprising because in a visual novel if you play the game and you get a bad ending you then you know you play the game again and try to get a better ending and i feel like that's exactly what's happening with keichi here yeah pretty much and, and that also begs the question, what's next? What now? Well, let's see. We had an arc focusing on Rena. We had an arc focusing on Mion and Shion. And then Sadako. And we've had several teases at, who, at Rika and who she actually is over the course of these mini arcs. So I imagine that by process of elimination, I assume that the next arc is either going to be about Rika or... We're going to change protagonists, and Rika will be the protagonist for the next arc. That's my best guess. I will also just throw this in there to drive me crazy. If I remember correctly, in the original show, it was I, one of the arcs in season one was a revisit of a previous arc from a different perspective was it was it rika's perspective Mm-mm. no oh darn and that's all i'm gonna tell you look at that previous arc so yeah i mean the most really- i mean the most interesting one to do would be the one with rena because i feel like we got enough out of the shion and me on stuff and um the one about Sadako kind of focused a bit on the entirety of the main cast. So if they're going to revisit a previous arc from GOU, it would have to be the Rena one. That would be the most interesting one to revisit. Um, 
and I'm thinking that the only real way that like the only good the way they'll do that one right would be if they had it be from Rena's perspective because or or Rika's because we also get the whole like Rika with Demon Eyes reveal at the end of the first episode so that'd be like the two that they could do but in my mind that's the only one that really makes sense because the other two kind of had pretty wide focus when it came to what characters it, it focused on so well let's see let's see what we got i think it's more likely that it will be an arc focused on rika though just because they've been foreshadowing her connection with the with the demon of the village um just a little little too much over the course of the last 13 episodes so i'd be surprised if they didn't do anything with them the next arc just because that's what that's what would make sense to me again they could do a revisit and then save what they're what they want to do with Rika for the final arc of the show. Cause based off the fact that the third arc was five episodes, I wouldn't be surprised if each arc after this is longer. We have twelve episodes left. Two six episode arcs. Eh, maybe either two six episode arcs or three four episode arcs. True. So I feel like two six episode arcs would be more interesting. Oh, for sure, and mm, would be very interesting to say the least. That's all I'm going to say. Yeah, no, this was a this was an interesting arc. Again, I like getting so much development from Sadako. Um, Brittany Wilda did an amazing job voicing her throughout this entire arc, and again, um, Koi Dao is fantastic as Keiichi and brings so much um, humanity to the character through his performance. So I'm excited Everybody. to see what happens next. We say this in a lot of our discussions, but basically, the, every episode it proves more and more true that Keiichi is literally Subaru. Yeah, I mean, he's like he's a very human, reliable protagonist and wants to do whatever he can to save the people around him, and constantly uh, fails pretty spectacularly at it. That's and you feel so bad for him. Yeah. Um, again, the only reason why I don't think he's as good as Subaru is just because we um, is because we have basically full like start overs from like um, from the beginning at the beginning of each arc, which Subaru doesn't have in ReZero. Again, it's, it's a difference in storytelling, but it makes it harder to um, endure ourselves to Keiichi just because everything's restarting. Um, however, I think Koi Dao compensates that because of how good his performance is. Um, I, I think that's that. one of the reasons why I didn't like the original Higurashi because GOU still suffers from that but it doesn't do it as badly because I have a better understanding or respect for the characters in the story because of the voice acting. And that's part of the reason why I watch English dubs in the first place. It's harder for me to connect to characters that don't speak the same language as me, which sucks, <laughs> but that's just how it is. That's how my brain works. So it's how, it's how mine works too. But no, I'm, I'm very excited to see what the second core of Higurashi GOU does and how they're going to set up for the second season, which is coming out next or uh, sometime either at the end of this year or next year, which is really exciting. Um, but yeah, for on a more lighthearted note, we also had a new episode of Horimiya this week. And I say lighthearted, but I cried twice. <laughs> Explain the two times you cried, because I'm actually curious what um, you cried at. I love Yoshikawa now. She's awesome. She's great. And I would die for her. <laughs> She's an amazing character. Okay. Um, I'm 
like again the writing for Horimiya is on point they do a really good job making you care for every character like you like um soccer that's the girl with the glasses name soccer yes. right yeah like at the beginning of this episode you grow the like sakura based off of her ish- interaction with Ishikawa. and then um from there like you you get her like asking him out um on top of that and spending more time with him and you see how much happier ishikawa is now that he isn't constantly thinking about hori and being jealous of her hori and miyamira's relationship but sadly we can't it sucks because you want to be happy for ishikawa but because um because ishikawa was yoshikawa's only like friend the only person that she could really confide in and now that she doesn't have that because of how much time he's spending with sakura you feel bad for her and you're just like why can't i be happy why can't i just be happy for ishikawa but um but i can't because because yoshikawa is so sad and it sucks i hate this this is a very similar feeling to how i felt about um um hachiman and yukino getting together in origaru oh you because you're happy for them you're happy for them but you also love Yui and feel bad for her because of every because of what she's going through because she no longer has friends to confide in. Now it's different because I don't think Yoshikawa had any romantic feelings towards Ishikawa, but he was her only like real friend, and you can feel like how much she's reeling at the loss. And I think that um, Sakura and Ishikawa do a really good job of of trying to make up for it by the by the end of that section of the episode. So, yeah, amazing writing. Great. Very impressed that they made me love this character over the course of just one episode. <laughs> yeah, she is relatable. Obviously, sometimes when you see friends, you know, go into relationships, it, you don't you don't get to see them as much. And obviously, I've I've been on I you know currently am and have been on both sides in the past, and it's it's a tough thing to deal with sometimes and. Obviously, it's up to both parties just to try to stay, you know, obviously maybe not hang out as much or stay in touch as much, but like obviously still make an effort to try to do so and don't just be consumed by the one person you're talking to. And and Yoshikawa's, you know, fear of that is very relatable. Mm-hmm. And it's it shows just how one episode she went from like, oh, she's she's nice. She's a friend to oh man, this, this hurts too much. Yeah, she went from being like the fun, entertaining background character to being probably one of the most like emotionally interesting characters in the show, which is again, like compliments to Horimiya's writing. They're doing an amazing job. This is very like Fruits Basket where they're just going around and fleshing out every single character. Yeah, this show only has 12 episodes to do it. Yeah, well, so far. I imagine that we're going to get a second season based off of how popular Horimiya has been and how popular the manga was. So, but no, it's again, like, and again, they did something somewhere with Sakura, but because we got so much time with Sakura in the previous episode, it didn't like, it didn't feel as poignant as what we got with Yoshikawa in this episode. Um, and then the second half of this episode focused on um, Hori and Miyamira, who are of course our dual protagonists. So it makes sense that we, go back to focusing on them for a little bit and we get a whole section devoted to um and relating to having to live without your your like having to 
move on without your partner there just for a little bit while because they like in a relationship each person has their own lives outside of the relationship that they have to deal with and hori having to let go a bit and let miyamura deal with whatever is happening with his family i imagine that it appeared that he went to a funeral um and the sense of kind of like distance that she felt over those five five days without him the the sense of missing him and trying to figure out who she is apart from him because before this point they've pretty much been together doing almost everything together since the first episode of the show ah yes long distance in a relationship oh it it's awful look i can i can say that this upcoming summer i'm going to be away from my girlfriend for three months Possibly a couple more weeks on top of that, considering uh, classes don't start in the fall until late August. So that is almost four months I could be away from my girlfriend. I can completely understand, you know, having that distance because obviously, because obviously my girlfriend, I've been with her this whole time and we've been, you know, doing things together in person. So having over three months without that person is that's that's not it's not gonna be it's not gonna be fun i'm not looking forward to it at all but obviously when you have long distance it's important to have you know figure out your identity without that person because you can't rely on them and and i love that this show represented that perfectly obviously we everyone has their own identity without their partner you're not you're not consumed your identity is not consumed by your significant other. That's just not how it works. It's two people sharing a life together. And Hori's struggling without Miyamura. She was literally counting down the days. Mm-hmm. And that's a very understandable feeling. And it, it, it's, it's, it's a nice reminder, like, hey, it sucks that your significant other is not there. But this is now your time to figure your stuff out. So when the person does comes back, it can be even better, arguably. And that's why one relationship advice is that every couple should have a phase of long distance. Yeah. they. I mean, it's important to know who you are outside of a relationship. And something that we're going to talk about this in a moment. Um, once we're done talking about Horimi, we're going to talk about Ruby. But this is something somewhere that Ruby is doing right now with Nora and Ren, um, with both of them trying to figure out who they are without the other. So it's very necessary in a relationship to know who you are outside of it because otherwise um, you'll start questioning who you are without the relationship. Yes. And if the relationship doesn't work out, what do you have to fall back on? Yeah. It kind of like it, it could create a sense of codependency, which is never good for a relationship. No, you, yeah. Yeah. As, as the show is kind of talking about also real life situations, you should never depend on your significant other for your source of evidence. Obviously they should be probably the main, like the, the biggest source, but not the only one. And that's why you can't have that codependency, which is what Hori was potentially having to deal with. Yeah. Um, and I, I love the moment when, um, when me and Mira finally gets, gets back and they have the moment to reconnect. That was great. Yes. When, when when you're away from a partner and you see them for so long, like you just feel so much joy and it, you don't even know what to do in the moment. You're just so excited that sometimes you get a bit clumsy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was that was awesome. Um, I, I, I mean, I, again, I love how every character in the show is being written. 
and um, especially Mir, Mira, and Hori, because they are our protagonists. They have to be the ones that have the most emotional weight in the show, and they absolutely do. Um, I'm again, I'm constantly surprised how good this um, Hori Mia is. When I went going into the show, I assumed it would be your average romantic comedy slice of life like Nozaki Kun, and then it ended up being so much more. And I'm so happy about that. Oh, yeah, no, this has been definitely a pleasant surprise, and I can't wait to see more of it. Yeah. Uh, the last thing that we're going to talk about on the podcast is that we've recently watched the final episode of Ruby Volume 8. Um, and I don't know about you, Sean, but this is easily the best volume of Ruby ever. And it's on par with some of the best television that I've seen, which is crazy because Ruby used to be one of the weakest shows I was watching because of how bad volume five was on par with the best of television. Yeah. Was, you have really heard fun. it here first folks. Yeah, it was good. It was really good. Like the writing was spectacular this season. Like, like, I mean, I have like minor like issues with it, but for the most part, this volume was fantastic. Yes, it was by far the best volume. Now, volumes three and seven were the were the were the two best going into it. And what what the best volume between three and seven was hotly debated. I personally gave the slightest to volume three because of how consistently good it was. I agree with that. While some others give the edge to volume seven is because of how it advanced the show, but volume eight does the best of both worlds. It's consistently great, but it also like evolves the show in such dramatic ways. Mm-hmm. And oh, by the way, there's the finale brought death. Yeah, yeah there was uh, dear God, there were, yeah, the characters died, um, which is and um, this is the first time where like character death in Ruby had weight since volume three, because I didn't. I mean, like I personally felt nothing when Lionheart was killed by Salem in volume five, nope. and I felt nothing when Adam was killed in volume six. Which is a shame because I like I thought Adam was a really interesting villain before, you know, Volume Five happened and ruined oh, his God. character. And Volume, I mean, he needed to die in order for Ying and Blake's characters to have growth and have kind of finality before their arcs were headed in Volume Six. But it's a shame that he was so underwritten in Volume Five that his death in Volume Six, despite how well executed it was, it just didn't. It didn't feel, it didn't have any weight behind it because of how badly he was written in volume five. And luckily, that is not an issue with volume eight. Yes, uh, volume five, the volume that could have derailed this entire show, but thank God, thank God it didn't. Yeah, luckily, volume six and seven were really good, and then volume eight was pretty much perfect. <laughs> yeah, and we had a couple very interesting developments in volume eight. Um, First, uh, Cinder became a thousand times better villain than she ever was the, the rest of the series. Dear God. Yeah, so the biggest reason why Cinder is so good in this volume is because we visibly get to see her struggle, which is something that they teased in Volume 4, but then did nothing with in Volume 5. Um, and we see how her devotion to Salem um, has a lot of negatives in how it parallels her past because we get we finally get to see cinder's backstory and get those cinderella parallels 
in this volume, which honestly, I, again, I think that we should have gotten it sooner, but that's not really an issue with this volume as it is like how the show was getting written before. Um, yes. But it like... works because of the way that Salem treats Cinder in this volume. Yeah, and I feel like um, uh, like any like issue that you can have with volume eight, like it's not totally on volume eight. It's other seasons that force volume eight to kind of pick up pieces in a way. Yeah, and primarily volume five because volume five is the one that whose writing was easily the weakest, and um, there's a lot of elements in volume five that the last three volumes have been trying to retroactively fix um, the best that they can. And luckily they did. And another way they did that was through Hazel. Uh, oh my God. <laughs> oh yeah. Hazel was great. This volume. Oh, which I can't God. believe. I mean, like the actor playing him and the charisma that Hazel has and the personality he brings to Ruby has always kind of went itself to the idea of, of a potential redemption arc, because he seemed like the most common collected or sane member of Cinder's inner circle. Yes, because when you look at Sam's in a circle, you have Dr. Watts, who has, you know, embraced how intelligent he is. Yeah, he has he, anger for Atlas for shunning his genius, and Salem respects his genius. So naturally, he's devoted to her through, because of that. Tyrion is just crazy. Yeah, Tyrion's just nuts. He's just insane. He, he, he sees Salem as a way to give his life meaning outside of just random acts of murder, which is probably what he was doing before Salem found him. And um, Cinder's obviously very evil. Well, Cinder has Stockholm Syndrome. She sees Salem as a mother-type figure, the mother that she never had, except Salem abuses her just as much as her, her stepmother did in her backstory. It's very much Stockholm Syndrome. And Cinder wants to be this evil force in nature because that's what Salem wants her to be. Yeah, it, it, this volume really made her a more tragic character. And because Cinder learned to accept her own faults, she became much more dangerous. She was willing to work with Neapolitan and Watts, although uh, that's not exactly... Yeah, her, her conversation with Watts this volume was fantastic, mainly because she realized he was right. Yes. And also not, not to mention he, she, basically, she basically apologized to Neo for not holding up her end of the bar. I'm like, wait, Cinder's actually acting intelligently? Yeah, oh, she's being no. she's being nice. She's being nice. She's giving this false um, kind of face of, of niceness to get Neapolitan and Watts to trust her just a bit, you know, before she, uh, before she uh, double crosses them in the finale. <laughs> Well, yeah, because ultimately her allegiance lies with Salem. Yeah, and, and she doesn't like that Neapolitan has kind of betrayed her multiple times throughout this volume. And she definitely doesn't like the fact that Walt, Watts is willing to stand up to her despite how powerful she is. But she just had to be nice. To... Well, she had to be nice to get them on their side, to, to do what she wanted to do, to get where she wanted to, to, to get the spear and have both of the relics to hand to Salem. And obviously, Sam was very happy. And I just love how Salem and Cinder exchanged the relics. Mm -hmm. And Ironwood was just laying there. Ah, yes, Ironwood. Probably the best written character in this entire show. Yeah. It's interesting to me um, 
like talking with like seeing fans like um who haven't been watching Ruby that dropped off in volume four warn that Ironwood is a villain because it's amazing that so many people were so put off by the writing of volumes four and five that they never thought that Ironwood being a villain would be written well in the slightest. Yet he is the best written character in the entire show. Oh yes. His downfall is so traumatic. If you go back and watch the first couple seasons and you see Ironwood, you think, okay, you're like, okay, there's this guy, but you have the knowledge of what he does in, in at the end of volume seven and then all volume eight, where he's he's you know, he's a villain and yeah. the damn good one at that. Yeah, he starts out as a likable character in volumes one, two, and three. Um, being kind of a militaristic type character that keeps um his guns on his sleeve, which Ospin really didn't like because of um Ospin's more cautious and respectful personality um trying to hide his true weapons and instead of showing them up front um and ironwood's defeat at the hands of cinder and the end of volume three um made him realize how small he actually is in the larger scheme of themes and you see how this has affected his view on the world in volume four and volume seven and over the course of volume seven he becomes more and more distrusting, um, more and more fierce. Um, he loses touch with the world around him and stops caring about other people's lives. He, he becomes heartless in a way, when you say. Huh, kind of like a certain Wizard of Oz character. Yeah, you know, like the Tin Man, huh? I wonder, I wonder where they got the idea for that from, huh? <laughs> hmm, very interesting. But we see Ironwood just straight up murder people in this life of humor. Yeah, he's not afraid to kill anyone that stands in his way. And that is shown multiple times throughout this volume. Yes, and now that leads us to talking about Winter Schneed, the new oh, winter. winter Maiden. Oh my god. Yeah, um, kind of like I, I, Winter is probably as well written as Ironwood in this volume, honestly. Her change in personality and morality throughout this volume due to her friendship with Penny and um, her sister and Weiss being her sister and their relationship and the and how sympathetic she is to um, John, Yang, and Ren trying to rescue Oscar is just fantastic. It is, and... Yeah, Bob, Penny's dead, by the way. Floyd. Yeah. Penny's dead. Yeah. Um, but no, um, winter, winter's flight change in morality is, and personality is awesome. It's very well written, very well executed, and the fight between her and Ironwood is fantastic. It is, and she had to basically be on the defensive as Ironwood was just blasting his gun at her. Yeah, and Winter even had one of my favorite moments in this volume, which is when she first kind of stands up the ironwood when Morrow is re- when he's when Ironwood is talking about um destroying mantle if ruby um and the rest of them don't give up penny um so that he can use the spear and protect mantle or protect atlas and he was going to annihilate the entirety of mantle in response and Morrow, of course voices his extreme dis dislike for this course of action 
um, which has been slowly built up through the course of the volume. And Winter knowing, you hear, you hear Ironwood's gun click, and Winter knows that if she hesitates or, or doesn't do anything to stop it, that Ironwood would just straight up murder Morrow right then and there. And luckily, she steps in and, and decides and arrests Morrow before Ironwood can kill him. Yeah, very smart move. And luckily, that ended up working out in our favor, uh, taking down Ironwood before he was able, before he was released by Watts. Yes. Um, also, uh, R- Ruby and John uh, fell. Yes. Um, very, very far into another dimension. Yeah. Um, before we get to that, you did mention that Penny died. Um, it's important to note that. While this is the second time that Penny has died in the show, this one is permanent. She is not a robot anymore. She became human in the last episode when they had to take the virus out of her. So she's she's dead, dead. They're not. She's not coming back. She's gone permanently. Um, which sucks, but it's again, it's not it's not surprising. I kind of saw that one coming. I really like Winter getting the maiden power, and I think it's a really fitting end for Penny. Because she got to, she got everything that she wanted. She got to be a real girl, and it's a shame that she didn't get to, to be a real girl for very long. But she at least died doing what she wanted, protecting the people of Mandel and Atlas. Yes, and it's it's tough. And obviously, when everyone realizes that she's gone, it's going to be very tough. And with the, everything that's happened. We're going to need episodes just for all the characters to learn, like, oh, yeah, this person's dead. This per- These people are gone. Yes. We're, there will definitely be time spent, like, grieving over those that we lost in this volume. Um, but before we, before we get into predictions for Volume 9, because that's what's going to happen once we start talking about the Void, um, Ren and Nora probably got the most development this season outside of Ironwood, character-wise. And I know that Ren is your favorite character, so I was wondering what your thoughts were on how their relationship changed and developed over the course of this volume. Because Nora is personally one of my favorite characters in the show as well. Yes. So, I would say your overall favorite. Probably. I love her. <laughs> okay. She's great. <laughs> All right, well, you, you brought this up when we talked about Hormia, and because Ren... Here's the thing. If I was a character in Ruby, I'd be Ren. Why? Ren is... Is, is is a quiet and a bit shy in public, really talkative when you get him to be comfortable. He's also someone who is afraid. I I have fear about a lot of things on a daily basis. And he's also a character who is very protective of his friends and can show the tough love, but also go out of his way to do stuff for them. That literally Ren is me in Ruby. And obviously, you know, Ren is in a relationship you know, just like I am in real life. And Ren and Nora had a fantastic conversation about, you know, oh, it's it's just Ren and Nora, but I don't know who Nora, just Nora is. Yeah, because since their introduction, Nora has never been without Ren until this volume because of their kind of difference in ideology, which was slowly discussed in volume seven with Ren at least attempting to understand where Ironwood was coming from because of the fear that he has for the world around him. He, he agreed with a lot of the stuff that Ironwood was doing in volume seven until 
Ironwood went too far. Um, and because of that, Ren questioned whether he was going too far as well, whether, um, whether he, his ideology, whether he could end up just like Ironwood. And that created kind of a moral, moral divide within him that he had to deal with on his own um, in this volume. And we see exactly what that conflict um, means with his conversation with John and Yang earlier in this volume. And we see him come to terms with who he is be because he's without Nora. Um, he's discovering who he is without her. And Nora never really has a moment like that. Um, so when we get the conversation between the two of them with Ren finally confessing his love for Nora, um, I love the line that Nora says where she says that she, she has always loved him, which we've seen constantly throughout the show. She's always loved Ren, but she doesn't know what she is without him. Yeah, it's when you know someone for that long, it's hard to know who you are without them because they're so attached to you. Yeah, they've been together since they were kids, since they were the only survivors of their of their village getting destroyed, which we saw back in volume four. Yeah, and I like the growth that these two have gotten because they haven't gotten that solo development without each other. And when they continue to grow without one another, which they already started to at the end of the volume, that is going to allow the relationship to be just the best, spectacular. Because once you get through when you're able to be by yourself, which is why, again, long distance is something that everyone should do in a relationship if you truly know it's going to work. And after that, that's when the relationships become the best that they can be. Yeah. I don't necessarily know about long distance, but you definitely need to have at least some period of time to understand where you're both separate from each other, to understand what you are without the other person. Yes. And I love that Ruby tackled this concept very well. Yeah. Again, it, like Nora and Ren have always been the best written relationship in, in Ruby. And that only consistently becomes more and more the case over the course of each volume which i love um they're two of my favorite characters in the show so it's awesome to see their relationship be as well developed as it is absolutely especially considering how simple it was at the beginning of the show oh it was incredibly simple but it was it, it worked but obviously it had to get more complicated as ruby has gotten much more complicated yeah and yeah, I, I really love the moment of Ren booping Nora. <laughs> That's so cute. And I love that. Um, Very awesome. I, I, one of my favorite songs in the soundtrack is Nora and Ren's theme, which is literally called Boop, which is um, one of the lyrics in that song is, um, when, when I want to say I love you, I say boop instead which is exactly what happened, which is exactly how Nora shows her love for Ren throughout the course of the show. So it's, it's nice to see that reversal here, especially in such a poignant scene. Yeah, that scene. Very gut-wrenching to say the least. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so, at, and, and you tried to talk about this earlier, but now we'll fully go into it because, you know, we got to do volume nine predictions. What's the point of talking about Ruby without it? So... And in these last two episodes, one of the one of the key things that um, the spirit behind the spear—I don't remember what his name is off the top of my head. 
Um, um, James, I think. Maybe. But um, when they created all the portals to go to Vacuo, um, there were two things that were very important that they kind of didn't really think about, is that if the void beneath the paths, because there were no, like, handrails or anything, and that, and he specifically warned them that if you fall, you're, you're, you're going to, you basically fall into the void. You disappear. You don't necessarily die, but you're not really in the point of existence anymore. Um, and also that the portals to Vacuo specifically are a one-way trip. You can't go back through the portals. Yes, and this causes a major problem when Cinder is fighting Team Ruby and Oscar can't go back and help them. Yeah, Oscar and Ren are both stuck on the other side. It's very unfortunate. <laughs> because over the course of the final two episodes, the entirety of Team Ruby plus Jean fall into the void. Yes. Um, yeah, all, all four members of Team Ruby, John and Neapolitan, all fall into the void. That's right, Neo did as well. Yeah, so I imagine that we might be getting some kind of redemption arc for Neapolitan in the next volume. Because we saw where they ended up <laughs> as the end credit teaser for, um, for Ruby Volume 8. Um, teasing where we're going to go with Volume 9. And we see Ruby Scythe on an island. A very weird looking island. Possibly another dimension? Yeah, I'm... My theory is that they ended up in the realm that the two brothers, like gods that created um, Remnant. Because, um, specifically the god of life because of how colorful the island that they ended up on is. And uh, in my opinion, that would make perfect sense, but who knows? It's just my best guess. Again, the relics were created by the two gods, so that's just, that's, it would make sense for that to be where they are, in my opinion. Um, we're also probably going to get a lot of time devoted to Crow and Winter mourning the death, the seeming deaths of Ruby and Weiss and Yang. Yes, I'm really hoping that Volume 9 is focused the, the most on Crow and Winter just because... Like, yes, Ruby are Team Ruby are the main characters, but I'm hoping that we get more of like a dull perspective and focus just because I find because I find Crow and Winter to be two of the most interesting characters right now. But obviously, you actually pointed this out when we watched it. Volume volume nine in some ways will be like the last 10 episodes of Eureka 7, where you have Rents and Eureka on Earth. And they're trying to figure out a way back and they're trying to survive. And that's what Team Ruby's going to have to do as well. Yeah, exactly. And another thing I didn't, I really didn't think about until like just now, just talking about how Crow and Rinder are going to be mourning. It, th for Rin and Nora, they have just like, if they assume that John is dead, that then they have now lost half of their team that they started with at Beacon. Oh, I didn't think about that. Oh, no. Like, I can't even imagine what they're going to go through because John was one of the, one of the things that was keeping them like held together. Like he was the glue that kept their team together when they were at beacon. And he has always been their, their leader. 
and the person that they would confide in when um, they needed help um, and vice versa. So it's going to be, it's going to be really rough for them not having John, especially with how, um, how different um, Nora and Ren's relationship is now. It's, I think it's going to be really rough for them. Oh, it's going to be brutal to watch. I obviously with them having to grow as people on top of, you know, losing all, all their, a lot of their friends, basically, they're going to be massive wrecks. And the only thing they have is each other, but they're trying to figure out who they are without each other. Ah, that, that, that's rough, man. Yeah. It's, it's, it's going to be interesting to see where the next volume goes again. It has the potential to be just as good as volume eight. And based off of how well-written volume eight was, I have, my faith has been restored in, in, the team behind Ruby. So oh, completely so. This was easily the best volume of Ruby. Uh, fantastic show in every way. Love where the show was going. Obviously, yeah. now we're obviously the two seat volumes in Atlas are done because because Atlas is now completely destroyed as his mantle. Yeah, I'm yeah. again like I'm. My my things my only like issues with this volume is I wish that we had a little more time with Penny as a real girl, and seeing the implications of that and seeing how her father would react to her being human again. I don't love what they did with the the Grim Reaper. I think that she had like very little to do with this volume, but um, again, that's that's more of like that's an issue that Ruby's always had. They've had a lot of issues balancing their large cast, but I think this volume actually did it pretty well, considering how much time was devoted to the Aesops and Crow and Robin and the um, all the villains and every member of her main cast. I think they did a good job splitting up the screen time so that everyone felt like they had the moment to shine um, so that no one felt underwritten, because that's one of the issues that um, volumes um, four and five struggled with a lot, was having too many characters, the balance. Um, and that's even an issue that Volume Seven had a little bit as well. Yeah, it, it's when you have a large cast like this, it is all next to impossible to balance everything. So of course, there's going to be a couple things that are going to be pushed to the side, just the way it goes. But I thought it was, I thought it was overall balanced. Really, my only small issue with it is, I I wish that there was a little more time with with the Aesops and Ironwood and Winter. I, th- I, I, I would have liked a little more time with them and less time with Team Ruby because, all right, this is like my one thing about the show that like most people disagree with me about. I actually find Team Ruby to be some of the least interesting like main players in in the show. I but, don't disagree with you on that. Oh, um, thank God. <laughs> no, I, I don't disagree with you at all on that. Um, and again, I think that the biggest reason for that is because of how um, Volume 5 was written. Um, because Volumes 4 and 5 were meant to be our time focused on what the members of Team Ruby were without each other. And I don't think they used that time well enough. So now that they're back together, which they have been since the end of Volume 5, um, it doesn't... It doesn't feel like they're as well-developed as they could be. Now, with that said, this volume did a really good job at writing each member of Team Ruby. Because once again, 
we have the members of Team Ruby apart from each other. We have Yang dealing with being away from Ruby Weiss and Blake and seeing what that means for her character and vice versa as well. Um, we get a lot of time developing Weiss as a character. We get to see her interactions with Whitley and how she's changing Whitley as a character because Whitley is also much better in this volume than he was previously. We see how much Weiss affects Winter as well. And I think all of that, that like combination of character interactions and relationships makes Weiss a really well-rounded character. We have Ruby dealing with moral conflicts for the first time ever in Ruby's history. Um, and it's done well. <laughs> and Blake, while probably the most underwritten of the four of them up until the end with her reaction to Yang disappearing, she still has a lot of really good moments, primarily because her relationship with Yang is actually written well in this volume and developed well. Like, I actually care about it and, and like them being together. So... I think that the, the Ruby being uninteresting is, is, again, an issue because of the show's writing before, not because of this volume specifically. And they are the main characters of the show. They're going to get focused on no matter what. That's just how it is. Yeah, I would, I would agree with that analysis. I mean, obviously, I think they still are written well. I just find characters like Ironwood and Winter and Ren and Nora especially, mm -hmm. I just find them more interesting. But I that doesn't mean I don't like Team Ruby. It's just that I find the adult and, you know, June... Uh, the other June characters. Morning. Just yeah, say the other characters. Yeah. <laughs> That's fine. Um, but you also have to understand at the same time that the Aesops are given as much time as they deserve to have. They're secondary characters in the story. Ren and Nora are, and John are given just as much screen time as the members of Team Ruby are. Which I'm very happy about. Because they're, they, they have always had equal weight in the story. That's been the case since they were introduced in Volume 1. Um, and Cinder especially is given just as much... And, and Hazel before his death are given just as much screen time as the main members of Team Ruby. So Absolutely. it's, I think that this volume balanced the characters perfectly. I don't have any issues with how much screen time was devoted to each one. Um, any issues with writing for characters in this volume, like it was in volume six and seven, was mostly a retrospect thing. Because volume five damaged these characters so much, they're still having to recover from a lot of the issues that that volume had. Yeah, that volume was just rough. And yeah. I'm glad that the show is progressing well while retroactively changing. Yeah. Things. And that's that's the main reason why I don't consider like Team Ruby feeling weaker as characters an issue with this volume. Because from what the time they're given in this volume, they're written extremely well. That's I think I think the only one that wasn't again is Blake and that's and she wasn't written badly by any means. She just was like swipe. She just was slightly underwritten compared to the other members of the main cast, um, which has been an issue that Blake has had since um, they kind of ditched the White Fang storyline in Volume Five. Without the White Fang, Blake really doesn't have as much character or meaning yet. And I'm hoping that they're able to find 
or decide where they want her character to go again with volume nine, because she needs to be more than just her relationship with Yang. Like her relationship with Yang in this volume was written well, but now that Adam is gone and we haven't gotten Ilya since volume five, yes. the beginning of volume six, there's, there's really nothing like Blake really isn't, doesn't have much of a character outside of her relationship with Yang, which is a shame. I mean, we get interactions with her and the rest of the main cast and we see her like feeling bad and sympathizing with Penny, but we don't really, she doesn't really have much like character to her currently. Something volume volume nine needs to fix. Yeah, which is a shame because Blake used to be one of the most interesting characters in the show back in volume three and four. So it's it's a really it's a real shame that she's kind of that the writers have kind of lost her sense of purpose with the character. Yeah, so. it is a shame. Again, overall, I love volume eight. I thought it was awesome. Like I, again, I have very little issues with it. I think that the fans are just a little too harsh on this volume. Um, again, like the episode with um, the Ren and Nora scene, which is my favorite scene in this entire volume, um, was hit by fan vitriol because of the weak animation in that episode. What? Right? What? I don't understand. I think, in my opinion, I think that the Ruby fandom are a bunch of spoiled brats that don't Um, that don't deserve a volume as good as volume eight at all this is why i just this is why i tend to tune out fan bases general because especially with star wars we know how toxic fans can be yeah uh i think it's more of a of a thing of just i'm always curious what the overall consensus is of each episode so i always read the comments after each episode premieres on verve and it sucks how split the fandom seems to be with how um, Rooster Teeth is handling Ruby, even with volume eight, like in volume four, five, and even six, I kind of, I understood it because like, I think volume six is good, but it has a plethora of issues on its own. Same thing with volume four. I think both of them are good, but have a lot of issues. Um, Volume five is the only volume that I think is actually bad. Um, And that's mainly because of a lot of the things that it could, that all the things that was doing, could have been good but they were all just executed horribly and then volume seven was when the show finally started getting back to where it kind of was quality wise with the first three volumes and volume eight in my opinion is the best volume of all of ruby even better than volume three because it takes the writing of volume three as the same quality of writing as the same consistency but the animation and art style are so much better than volume three and that's just it's five years of difference They've had, Rooster had five years to get better at animating between volumes three and eight. And I'm planning on writing a whole article about this at some point, because it's insane how far Ruby has come since um, the beginning, especially how much they were able to recover from their failings with volume five. Yeah, I would completely agree with that. And the, the last real thought I'll say is, I am very excited to, you know, get to know more of Vacuo because I'm assuming that that's, you know, a, a decent amount of volume will take place there. And I'm excited to get to know the last of the four major places that we haven't really seen yet. I'm just excited to meet Wendy <laughs> because we know, that the, we know that the headmaster of the Vacuo Academy is based off of um, Wendy from the Wizard, or not Wendy, um, Dorothy from the Wizard of Oz. Um, so that'll be exciting.
Absolutely. Uh, I also am hoping that we finally get some more time with Sun and Neptune because of my issues with Volume 4 and 5, the writing for Sun's character was not one of them. <laughs> I thought Sun was great in Volumes 4 and 5, and I'm so happy we're hopefully going to get more of him in Volume 9. And yeah. Neptune. It's been... We haven't gotten, like, serious time with Neptune since Volume 3. Dear God, it has been <laughs> like, a long time. Like, we got a, we got a bit of him in, at the beginning of Volume 6 when, um, when Blake... And the rest of them started heading the Atlas from Haven. But uh, it's going to be nice to see them again. I agree. I'm very excited to see them again. But yeah, any any final thoughts on Ruby, Sean? That would be it. Uh, I'm going to write a uh, review of Ruby Volume 8 at some point. So stay tuned for that. Yeah. Well, I'll do it for um, this week's episode of Nerdsplosion then. Um, I know you mentioned earlier that you're doing a review for Ruby Volume 8. Is there anything else you have upcoming on the site? Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll still so, so try to do the Ace Trans uh, article at some point, obviously. Heading into the final month of school, a little, a little hard to find the time to do that. But it will it will come at some point, whether it, whether it's next couple of weeks or at the at, at the absolute latest, it will come out in May because that that the school semester will be over. So that's when more articles will start coming out for the site. Mm-hmm. And the same goes for you as well. I'm yeah, saying. absolutely. Um, I'm currently working on an article about why people should read Invincible now that the now that the amazing Amazon show is out for everyone to watch. Again, please watch Invincible. It's awesome. Um, but the comic is easily one of the best written comics of all time. It would be awesome. I think the best thing to come out of the show would be if more people started reading the comic because it absolutely deserves everyone's attention. It's so good. Um so I'll hopefully have an article about that coming out soon. Again, worst case scenario, I don't, it's not going to come out until after school is over, which at that point, I'm pretty sure Invincible will still be airing new episodes on Amazon. So not the end of the world, but what will definitely be coming in the future is um, I do have more comic book reviews coming out this coming week um, because on Tuesday and Wednesday, we'll be getting new issues of Tom King and Mitch Jared and Doc Shainer's Strange Adventures, which is my current favorite comic um, that is being written. It's awesome, and it's easily my favorite month-to-month read. Uh, there's also going to be a new issue of Crossover this week by Donnie Cates, so I'm really excited for that as well because mainly due to Madman being in it because I love Madman. Um, yeah. And we're also getting the first issue of Daniel Warren Johnson's run on Beta Ray Bill which I'm very excited for because Beta Ray Bill is one of my favorite like C-list Marvel characters. And it's awesome to see him get his own comic, especially considering that in the comics, he's one of the few characters that can weld Mjolnir, Thor's hammer. And um, a lot of people know Stormbreaker from Avengers because of it being Thor's second hammer that he got in Infinity War. But in the comics, Stormbreaker is Beta Ray Bill's hammer. It was what was made for him because he could weld Mjolnir. And since, you know, Thor kind of needs Mjolnir, they, um, Odin crafted or had the dwarves craft Beta Ray Bill his own Mjolnir. So I'm really excited to see what Daniel Warren Johnson is going to do with the character. Um, hopefully it's it's as good as I want it to be. Because again, Beta Ray Bill's awesome. I, I've liked him in everything I've read. I know most recently he was in Donny Cates' run on Guardians of the Galaxy. And I think he's appeared in Donny Cates' run on Thor recently as well. So very excited for that. 
very interesting. <laughs> yeah. Um, anyways, um, thank you all for sticking with us through this very long episode where we discussed wither away everything that we watched this week. <laughs> um, and I hope that you have a great rest of your day. And please watch Invincible.